We are in the last uh, week of our series that we're calling Straight Answers to Difficult Questions, uh, a series where we're looking at some of the most common objections to the Christian faith. Uh, and if you miss those or are interested in those, we, we do have those recorded and available on our website. But today we're, we're in that last one, and we're looking at the objection that says, can you really trust the Bible? At the end of the day, can you really trust the Bible? One guy put it this way. I see much of the Bible's teaching as historically inaccurate. We can't be sure the Bible's account of events is what really happened. You can't really trust the Bible is the objection that's, that's sometimes made. So what we're going to do today is I actually want to broaden this a little bit and try to answer two questions. One thing I want to try to answer is why do we do this every week? Why do we come to this point in the worship service and, and spend 30 minutes or so talking about God's Word? Why do we do this? And then the second question I do want to try to answer is, can we really trust this Bible that we come and read together each week? So why do we do this in the first place? And can we actually trust this Bible that we're reading? So, uh, the scripture is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. This is God's Word. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So pray with me. Father in heaven, your word is truth. And I pray that you would make the truthfulness of your word apparent to us today. I pray that we would give heed to it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first question. Uh, why do we do this? Why do we do this every week? Why do we take this book that's 2,000 years old or so and, and spend this time talking about it and trying to figure out how this really old book applies to our lives today? I mean, you think we'd be able to find something more exciting to do for 30 minutes and listen to me talk? Um, you know, we could all talk to each other. We could watch The Walking Dead for half an hour. Um, we could tie John Paul down and try to shave his beard. Um, see if we take his strength away. <laughs> you know, the Red Sox aren't going to draft you just because you have a beard. Still hold on there. Why this? All the more entertaining and fun things we can do during our time. Why do we do this? Uh, the passage we just read tells us why. In verse 16, it tells us that Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, if you're reading in the, in the New International Version, uh, it says, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And so the first reason that we do this every week is that we really do believe that. That all Scripture is, is, is God-breathed, that is breathed out by God. When, when, we, when we pick up this book and when we read these words, we really are reading not just man's words, but we're reading the very words of God from Him. 
They're His words. And so we want to pay attention to these words. Now, you may object and say, well, okay, but, but didn't men write the Bible? And my answer to that will be, yes, that's true. Men did write the Bible. God didn't sit in heaven and type out the scriptures on his MacBook Pro and then email us all a PDF of, of the Bible. And it's, it's not how we got it. It's not how it came to be. He didn't publish it and then set up a storefront on Amazon and say it's 99 cents free on Kindle today. The, the Word of God. Okay, that, that's, that's not how the Bible came into existence. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what Peter and, and Paul, who wrote 2 Timothy, what they are both saying... Uh, is that is that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that men wrote these words, but that God directed them in such a way so that what they wrote was exactly what He wanted, wanted to be written. That God shaped their circumstances and their personalities, where they lived, their education. He shaped all these things in such a way that even though they were writing, the things that they were writing were the very things he wanted to be written. So that while they are men's words, they are at the same time the very words of God. And because they're the very words of God, they're true words, they're perfect words, they're faultless words. This book claims that what it writes is true. Not just true if you decide to accept it's true, but true whether you decide to accept that it's true or not. That the events that happened in it were real, that they are historical, that the people in it actually lived and walked, they lived and breathed on this planet. The things that it depicts actually happen. They're God's words. Uh, and here's one reason that's important. Uh, imagine for a minute that you are, are trapped uh, in, a, in a burning forest, okay? And you're trying to figure out how to get out. You can't see, there's smoke everywhere, you don't know which way to go to get away from the flames. Wouldn't it be helpful to have a word from above, from somebody who could see where the fire was, where the smoke was, somebody who could see the best way for you to go? A, a word from above, giving you the direction that you needed. In the Bible, we've got that. We've got a word from above. We've got a word from our all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing creator, giving direction to our lives. I think about this, if your computer breaks, uh, who do you want to talk to? Do you want to talk to the guy making 25 cents an hour in the call center in India? Or do you want to talk to somebody who actually designed the computer? You would much rather talk to the designer. When we look to the Bible, we have a word from our designer, from our creator, giving us direction for our lives. Uh, so if we want to hear from him, if we want to hear God's voice, if we want direction from the one who made us and who loves us, who made all things, then we need to give attention to his word. This is where he speaks to us in the Bible. That's one reason we study it each week, while we take this time in the worship service to look at God's word. While, we, while you guys do that with RUF, uh, why we do this in small group Bible studies, why we strive to do this on our own, in our own personal study of God's word. It's, it's his words. It's God-breathed. It's a word from our creator and designer, and so we want to give attention to it. Now, you, you might ask at this point, 
Well, okay, but how do I know? How do I know that this is actually God's Word? How do I know that these words in this book are actually breathed out by God? A couple of weeks ago, you may remember, I gave us this definition of, of knowledge from Esther Meek. She defined knowing this way. Knowing is the responsible human struggle to rely on clues to focus on a coherent pattern and submit to its reality. And then the illustration of that we used was, those of you who can remember, uh, back in the 80s there were these pictures and they were just a bunch of dots if you looked at them. But if you focused on these pictures long enough, gradually a shape would come into focus in the background of the picture. Okay? And so the idea is that if you stare at these clues long enough, then the picture in the background begins to, make, to take shape. And so when we are coming to know something, when we're coming to know that anything is true, the idea is that we look at the clues, and as we look at the clues, the, the truth in the background begins to come true, begins to come into focus. And then as it comes into our focus, we submit ourselves to this truth that we're seeing. So, uh, let's try to answer that question then with that in mind, if this is how we know things, how do I know that this is God's Word? Well, we're going to look at some of the clues that this is God's Word, that Lord willing, as you look at the clues, the truth that this is actually God's Word will come into focus for you. Um, and here's where I want to start. And I'm going to do this kind of quickly, but I want you to grab your bulletin again and turn back to the confession of faith that we used. They're, they're, they're answering, asking and answering the same question that we're dealing with. How does it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? And they start by saying the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God. In other words, they make known in their own power that they are the Word of God. Well, how do they do that specifically? Well, first it says by their majesty and purity. In other words, if you read the Bible, the, the majesty of its apparent, the purity of its apparent, the fact that there are no contradictions in it becomes apparent, that it shows itself by its majesty and purity that's the Word of God. Secondly, it says, by the consent of all the parts. In other words, that all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation fits together, all 66 books fit together to tell one story. Now, you really have to stop and think about that one for a minute. Because the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by around 40 different people over a period of around 1,400 years. And it all fits together different languages here, and it all fits together to tell one story of God redeeming His people from their sins. I mean, that, that's pretty amazing in and of itself. Uh, thirdly, and the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God. And we'll, we'll hit again on this in a minute. Um, but the Bible doesn't paint a very flattering picture of, of people. I mean, if, if I was making the Bible up, if I would have been an apostle and none of it happened and I was trying to create a religion, I certainly would have cast myself in a more positive light than the authors of Scripture do. I mean, from the beginning to the end, the heroes 
The heroes of the Bible are constantly messing everything up. From King David, who commits murder and adultery, to Peter, the one whom Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on you. Well, how does that start out for Peter? By him denying, by cussing, and denying when he's asked that he even knows Jesus Christ. These are the heroes of the Bible. The Bible paints a picture of men that is, is not very flattering at all. And if anything good comes out of the events in the Bible, it's because an all-knowing, all-glorious God is working inspired the favors of sinful men. So that at the end of the day, all glory goes to God. Who, who wants to make that up? Uh, fourthly, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners. In 1917, the Marxists, there was a revolution in Russia, and they essentially took over the country. And they began printing millions of anti-Christian tracts. And they would, they would take in these tracts and they'd print snippets of Scripture, things that they thought were errors in the Bible, or things that they wanted to make fun of in the Bible. So they were trying to tear Christianity down. They were trying to say, see, look how stupid Christianity is. And they printed all these tracts, and then before too long, they had to quit printing them. You know why they had to quit printing them? It's because people were getting converted from the little snippets that they had printed. Even though they were trying to take them out of context, people were getting converted by the Word of God. It's living, and it's powerful. It has this power to convince and convert sinners. Uh, the, the next thing we're told here is, is to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. In other words, just look at the way the Word of God impacts believers' lives and the effect the Word of God has on people's lives uh, to comfort and build up believers into salvation. So, and we'll come back to this in a minute, but let me give you, let me give you a couple more reasons we can trust the Bible. Uh, those of you who have, been, who have been reading along, you know we're roughly following the outline of Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. Uh, a couple of a couple reasons we can trust the Bible that come from chapter 7 uh, in that book. And these relate specifically to the Gospels. Because you'll hear people say from time to time, uh, well, the Gospel accounts are just legends. And none of that stuff really happened. The church just made all that up. They were trying to accumulate power for themselves. And so they just made all this up. I'll say two things in response to that. The first is this. Uh, the Gospels were actually written too soon after the events that they describe to have been legendary. Okay? The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these were all written at the latest within 40 to 60 years of when Jesus died. Paul's letters, which talk about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, were written 15 to 20 years after the events that they describe. So when these New Testament letters were being circulated for the first time, there were still a whole lot of people around who were actually there when the events that are being described happened. They were still living. Paul says there are 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ at once. And he's basically challenging his original readers. If you don't believe me, then go talk to one of them. They actually saw this too. Uh, Mark tells us that the man who helped Jesus carry the cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why would you put that in? I mean, why do you, when you're writing this, oh, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus? Well, basically, Paul is saying, look, go ask them. 
You know them. You know Alexander and Rufus. Go ask them about what happened. And it wasn't just supporters of Christianity who were around. There were many people around who had objected to Jesus, uh, who didn't follow him, who didn't want him teaching and preaching, who, were, who, who hated Christianity. And if all these people were still around, and if none of these things actually happened, then there would have been plenty of people to contradict the message of the Bible. The message of Christianity that a man rose from the dead would never have gotten off the ground. There's no way these could have been legendary because everybody knew what had happened. Everybody knew what had happened. Paul even says at one point, he's talking to the king of Agrippa, and he says, these things were not done in a corner. In other words, they weren't like everywhere nobody knew about them. These were public events that everybody can give testimony to. The Gospels were written too soon after the events that they described to be legendary. And then secondly, the content of the Gospels is too counterproductive to be legendary. Right, again, you'll hear people try to discount the authority of, of Scripture by saying, eh, the church was just uh, making all this up, trying to gain power. They were trying to build their, their movement. But that doesn't fit what's actually written at all. For example, uh, one of the biggest controversies in the early church was over circumcision. Should the early church, should Gentiles who were converting to Christianity be required to be circumcised? It was a big deal. There's a little part in the book of Galatians about it as they wrestled with this. And so think about it. If you're making all this up, wouldn't it be great if Jesus, the founder of your religion, had actually said something about this hot topic in the early church? I mean, you could go back and say, well, Jesus said this. Jesus didn't say anything about it at all. Because they didn't feel free to just put words into Jesus' mouth. Because they weren't making these things up. The crucifixion. Uh, why do you have the leader of your movement be crucified if it didn't actually happen? Both Greeks and Jews of that day would have assumed somebody who was crucified is simply a criminal. There would be, it would be really hard to talk about it. Well, that, that guy is just a scoundrel. He got crucified. That's who he is. Why do you put that in your religion if it didn't actually happen? Why do you have Jesus saying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This doesn't sound very strong or heroic. Why do you depict the apostles uh, the leaders of the early church as petty and jealous and just they just don't get it for so long. Why do you have Peter denying that he knows Jesus Christ? You don't put any of that in if you're making it up and you're trying to, to make yourself sound good and establish a movement on how great you are. The only answer to these questions is that the Gospels weren't made up. This is what actually happened. We'll give you one more reason. We've looked at some of the reasons in the confession of, of faith. We've looked at some of the reasons from, from reason for God. But I want to give you one more from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. And this is what he wrote. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In other words, one of the reasons I believe in Christianity is not only because I see that it's true, but because it actually sheds light on everything else in the world. It makes sense of reality in a way that no other system of thought 
can. I mean, in a world of multiple religions, multiple faith stories, multiple ways of living at life, Lewis is saying that the story of Christianity is the true story because it's the only story that makes sense of everything else. It's the only story that makes sense of the world as we know it. It's the key to the puzzle. It makes all of the other things in life fit together and make sense. The Christian story makes sense of our world. It makes sense of our joys and our pains, of our laughters and our tears. It makes sense of everything in a way that no other story, no other worldview can. And that points to its truthfulness. Now, that's what? Eight clues? Maybe that's enough for you to start on. Uh, that's several clues for you to, to look at and to think about. And if you're, you know, you're sitting there and you're wrestling with whether uh, the Bible is actually God's Word or not, if you're wrestling with whether you believe that, I, I want to say that's, that's okay. I, I want you to, to wrestle with that, to, to, to think about that. I, I hope you'll go back and you'll look at these clues. Maybe you've jotted some of these down and you'll go read some more on your own and, and think about uh, these things that point us to the fact that, that the Bible is God's Word. I want you to look at these. But I hope you'll do more than that. And, and, and here's what I mean. I hope you'll also ask God to show you the truthfulness of His Word. Now, why don't I say that? Look in your bulletin again, back at the Confession of Faith. Um, third line from the bottom. It, it tells us the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God. And here's the way. Da, 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 da. It goes through all these. Then it says, but. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. You see what that says? It says the Spirit of God bears witness by and with the Scriptures, and that's the only way that you and I will be fully persuaded that the Scriptures are the very Word of God. In other words, God has to actually open your eyes to see the truthfulness of His Word. Now, why do the guys writing this confession say that? Well, listen to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are falling to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, at the end of the day, if, if you're staring at these clues, which point us to the reliability of the Bible, and you're looking at the clues, remember, you're trying to look through them to get this picture to come into focus, what this is telling us is that God himself has to be the one to make them come into focus. And maybe, just maybe the reason you haven't been able to see it yet is because you're relying on your own wisdom and intelligence. And if I just get one more clue, and if I just think about this a little bit harder, and if I just hear one more sermon on this, then I can make it all come into focus. That you're trying to use your own willpower to make the clues come into focus instead of asking the creator of the clues to make them come into focus for you. See, at the end of the day, we're, we're ultimately dependent on the God whose word this is to show us that this is His word. So look at the clues, yes. Examine the clues, yes. Think about them. But ask God to show you. Ask God to help you see what all the clues point to. 
depend on him and not on yourself to make sense of the clues. Well, I'm giving you one reason we do this every week, right? Because the Bible is God-breathed. And then we've talked about several clues as to why we believe the Bible is God-breathed. What I want to do now in closing is to come back to that first point again and give you one more reason to lead with as to why we do this every week. Look at, look at verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The second reason we do this week after week is because God really does use His Word, the Bible, to rescue men and women from sin and from death. To deliver us from lives of, of hopelessness and meaninglessness. This, this book tells a story of how God rescues broken people and makes them whole again. Okay, we, we all, at some level, know that there's something broken with us and with the world. We know that there's something wrong in the world. Uh, some of you have experienced incredibly painful things in your life already. You've experienced incredibly painful things even recently. Uh, others of you may have, you may have largely dodged the bullet to this point on these hard things. But even the fleeting nature of our own pleasures ought to tell us that something is wrong with the world. I mean, think about it. We find pleasure with something, we're all excited about it for a while, and before too long, what are we? We're bored with it. We're ready for the new toy, the new relationship. It's time to, to move on to the next thing. I mean, I used to think House was the greatest television show ever for years until I finally realized it's just this Vicodin addicted doctor who solves mysteries that are never going to happen in real life. Um, and so, you know, you, you kind of move on. We, we never quite find what we're looking for. There's something with the there's something that's wrong with the universe. We move on to the next toy, to the next relationship, the next hobby, the new boyfriend, the new girlfriend, the new job. And we say, that this is it, I found it out. This is the thing that's gonna make my life complete and give meaning and joy to my life. I did watch Sense and Sensibility this weekend. <laughs> I, I would like to get my man card back eventually. But um, but since I'm not, so I'll go ahead and end up to it. But, but in Sense and Sensibility, Marianne, it is Marianne, right? Okay, Marianne is, is convinced that she has got to have Mr. Willoughby, that he is the man that she has got to have to complete her. And if she can only have a marriage, she can only be married to Mr. Willoughby, then, then everything about life is going to be wonderful. She's banking everything on him. And she's ignoring all the clues that might say, this guy really isn't who you think he is. He just, he just pushes all of those out of the way. The clues that are obvious to everybody else. So that when he betrays her, she's not just sad. She's devastated to the point of not even caring whether she lives or not. And I'd argue that what Marianne was looking for, even though she probably didn't realize this, and what we're looking for, even though we may not realize it, is that we're actually looking for a Savior. We're looking for a Savior. This relationship is going to save me. This lifestyle is going to save me. Success is going to save me. 
Having people like me is going to save me. Giving my life like I want it is going to save me. We don't ever put it in those terms, but that's what we're doing. We're, we're running after our own Mr. Willoughby, all right? whether it's success or whatever. If, if I did this, then my life is going to be completed. Everything's going to be okay. Something's wrong with the world. We all know it. There's something wrong with us, and we're looking for that Mr. Willoughby to, to make us okay, to make us complete. We're looking for a Savior. And the Bible comes in to this way of looking at things, and it says to us, none of those things are real saviors. None of those things can rescue you. And the Bible tells us that the Savior is actually a person. Uh, he's the, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, and His name is Jesus Christ. And if you entrust yourself to Him, He promises to restore you to a relationship with God. If you entrust yourself to Him, He promises to rescue you from the futility of life in a fallen world. He promises to undo the damage that all of your false saviors have done to you because that's what they've done. Is they don't ever actually help us. They actually damage us. He promises to make you someone new. To make you the person you were always intended to be. See, what Marianne and Sensitive Billy had to see was that she had spent all this time trying to put herself into the arms of the wrong lover. And she had to be brought to the place where she would actually put herself into the arms of the right lover. The lover who would actually give up his life for her. And what many of us have to see is that we're busy trying to put ourselves into the arms of the wrong lover. And we need to put ourselves into the arms of Jesus Christ. The only one who loves you so much that he would actually give up his life for you. The only one who's willing to die for you, even when you've been unfaithful to him. And the whole Bible, Jesus says in the Old Testament, the whole Bible is written to point you and I to Jesus Christ, the true lover of our soul. The whole Bible is, is meant to point us to the true Savior, the Savior that we actually need. So that more and more, we learn to put ourselves into His arms and not into the arms of these false saviors that we so readily surround ourselves with. And that's why we do this every week. That's why we study the Bible every week. Because we need Jesus every week. And we find Him in His Word. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that um, these sorts of conversations would not just be academic conversations, but that we would actually uh, study your word, not just because we're supposed to do it, because that's what good Christians do, but that we would study it to get you, to know you, the lover of our soul, to know you, the one true and dependable Savior, the only Savior who will die for us. Lord Jesus, we need you. Would you come and would you be with us and rescue us? We ask in your name.